How to Make Your Life Truly Fulfilling, an interview with Father James Maudsley. In this fourth of six interviews on his latest book, Crucifixion to Creation, Father Maudsley discusses the essence and pattern of human life, both before and after the fall of Adam and Eve. How you live this essence leads to your having either a fulfilling or a miserable life on this earth. How Fatima is linked to the eternal elements of the Mass. And how great Christian mysteries, like the Blessed Trinity and the Cross, are hidden within the very first lines, words, even first letters of the Bible. Praise be Jesus and Mary. I'm David Rodriguez, content director from the Fatima Center, joined again by Father James Monsley. Father, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. There's a lot to talk about. You have a fascinating book, which we've already started discussing. It is called Crucifixion to Creation. It's the third book in your New Old series. The others we've mentioned briefly already, Adam's Deep Sleep, and I always say Our Lady Crushes His Head, but the title is... Crushing Satan's Head. Crushing Satan's Head, a reference to Genesis 3.15, right. But one of the things that I have found fascinating personally as I read these books, especially because I guess I go through a lot of things trying to make connections with Our Lady of Fatima and her message, and because it is a divinely revealed message coming from heaven, there is this co-naturality. Naturally, you're going to find a lot of connections with Fatima in all sorts of things, in the mystery of the cross, in the mystery of the incarnation, the blessed trinity, and the mass. So as I've been reading your book on the mass, I've been seeing some of those connections. So if I may, I'd like to explore some of that with you today. Certainly. I'll start with another thing I really like about your book, Father, is it seems like you have these one-liners, and I highlight them and bold them in my book at the beginning of the chapters often, that seem to just sort of get right down to the essence of what this chapter is going to be about. And sometimes even more, obviously, than just the chapter. So on page nine, this is at the very beginning, you're talking about the eternal elements of the Mass, which we covered last time. You write this sentence and you say, for a human to live truly, self-sacrifice is essential. And so I thought that was profound. And if you would just please comment on that. I'll just briefly make the connection that, again, as I thought about the lives of St. Francisco and St. Jacinta and Lucia, and you read about their lives, even so young, with the two that died early, their whole life was, in fact, that self-sacrifice and really changed after they met St. Michael and Our Lady. And then Sister Lucia lived, obviously, this very long life of always self-sacrificing in, in a very, very painful, deep and profound ways. So if you could touch on that and why that's the reality of life and, and why this is so important for us humans, because it's something we often don't like. Yes, it takes us decades to learn it, really. And with the children at Fatima, they were fast-tracked by the angel and then by Our Lady. And God has shown that little children are capable of receiving the great truths of revelation. But the normal course for us is to take the lifetime that he gives us for that. The reason I think self-sacrifice is essential is because of the, the fallen world. But there is a pattern of it which is prior to the fall. If we think of the life of the Blessed Trinity as self-gift. So the Father gives everything 
to communicate the nature to the sun. And the sun receives everything from him. And they, by giving themselves completely to each other, therefore we have the Holy Spirit. Whereas if the father held something back, there would be an inequality. Or if the son tried to grasp more or refuse something, there would be an inequality and you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect balance of father and son or the union between them. There couldn't be a proper union if one of the divine persons was greater or lesser than the other. And so there would be no third divine person. And in fact, the lesser one wouldn't be divine because God is the fullness. So you have this self-gift is the pattern of reality in the divine persons. And it would have been like that with Adam and Eve and their children if there were no sin. It would have been easy to provide food for them because there was an abundance of fruit on all the trees. Bringing up the children would have been a pleasure because the children wouldn't be rebellious and disordered. And it wouldn't be laborious. It would be easy to do. So there's self-gift as the pattern of reality. But in a fallen world, it requires self-sacrifice. And we see how from the first to the second generation, a sin that began among humans with a disobedience and concupiscence and rebellion, although before them Satan had made a complete rebellion. But in terms of humans, it went in the second generation to fratricide. Cain murdered his brother. So things really started free-falling in society at large, if you like. And it points toward the ultimate remedy being the self-sacrifice of the Son of God on the on the cross. But meanwhile, for anybody to participate in that remedy requires of them to live this self-gift in the new context of a sinful world, which means it's going to be painful self-gift. It's going to be sacrificed more or less, ultimately martyrs. Would you then, I'm not sure if the fathers actually settled this debate, but then I guess we could say that just from creation and from the fact that the Blessed Trinity is he who is all existence, he's always in that self-gift, that we would have been called to self-gift even in paradise had we not sinned. That self-gift, but it would have been much easier and not painful. And the painful element to this self-gift, which maybe now we'll call self-sacrifice, is on account of sin. And therefore we have the cross, which is also not a pleasant, easy experience, but a painful one. Is that? Yes, that our life is to imitate God. We're made in his image and is to receive his life. So we need to be capax of receiving, capable of receiving a suitable vessel for divine life, which means we need to be self-giving. Um, but because we're in a sin- sinful world, you give sometimes of yourself and the other might take, even take from you when you're not ready to give. Someone steals your wallet. That's painful. Or in a relationship, if someone's all take, 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 and they show no gratitude even, it doesn't even have to be that they give something back. If children show gratitude to their parents, that's enough reward for the parents. You know, they're not expecting the children to start giving back in like manner. It's for the children to give it to the next generation. So simply because we're in a fallen world, if you want to try to give be giving of yourself, it's going to hurt. But it is the way to be like God, to come to him eventually in heaven, but meanwhile to build the kingdom of God on earth. So that's why I say that is what it is to truly live. And if you try to avoid it, if you avoid all self-sacrifice in this life, well, you'll be isolated, miserable, and probably end up going to hell. 
because that's no life at all. This concept of self-sacrifice is definitely at the very root of Our Lady's message of Fatima. You know, I often summarize it for people with the acronym Roman Catholic SOS. And so the rosary and consecration and the scapular, offering prayer and penance and doing the first Saturday devotion, which is focused on reparation. All of those things we see that it's our response to Our Lady and to God for the great graces that they give us and the great promises. We're offering these sacrifices ourselves. And I know sometimes it's, it's not that easy. For example, people say, well, praying the rosary every day or even the first Saturday every month. And I remind them, but that's that's the sacrifice that we offer. And actually, when I have found that whatever it might be, something falls on my head and I bump myself, hit myself pretty hard the other day. I don't know if they can even tell I have a bump on my forehead still. But you just if once you offer it up consciously, you know, especially one of the Fatima prayers that our Lord taught us that we can offer it up. For me, it always gets a little easier. It, It suddenly seems not quite as painful or the pain subdues. It goes away. And not not always, but sometimes. And it just reminds me that, again, this concept that you're talking about at the very beginning of your book, which is what the mass is about and creation is about. I just I step right in saying that that's what Fatima is about. That's what Our Lady is trying to teach us. Yeah. So thank you for that. And then I would just move into, again, connections. I saw you mentioned these immutable elements of the mass and four in particular. We've talked about them already. Uh, the lamb, the altar, the cross and the light to review for those who haven't gotten the book yet. But as I looked at those, I thought to myself, again, incredible connections to Fatima, many connections. I mean, if you look at the vision of Toy, which is sort of the climax and the summit, it has them all because Sister Lucia was before the altar. The candles were there. The big six, as you say in your book, it's the altar of sacrifice. The cross is there. Our Lord is on the cross. He is the lamb. But even in the, the messages, when Our Lady comes to visit them, the children talked about how she the way they described her clothing was just, it was light. She was, you know, just light. And then she opens up her hands and the light comes out, which is the grace of God. And they find themselves in God. How Our Lady comes and hovers over a tree. Uh, always, even in August 19th, it's over a tree. And again, that's a symbol, an image of the cross. And I just think of the cross and Our Lady there uniting heaven and earth, as you described as well, that the mass does and the tree of life does. The people immediately began to set up a shrine and they brought their offerings there over the coming months as Our Lady was appearing. And the shrine and bringing your offerings, that's the beginning of the altar, even the way maybe our ancestors, Jacob, or before him had the primitive altars that you talk about. And of course, they were shepherds. So so you had lambs everywhere in his story. Um, so I just thought, wow, he talks about these four elements. And lo and behold, by God's providence, intentionally so, when Our Lady comes at Fatima, we see all of these four. And when I don't know if you just... Archangel came to prepare the children, teaching them, and with press, it was with the Holy Eucharist. Which is ultimately, what he's trying to raise them for, prepare them for, the, the real presence of our Lord and his sacrifice, which is the meaning of the distinct body and blood that we perceive in the signs of the sacrament. This, this means his death. And, and so, I mean, you touch on your book, but again, any insights you want to share as to why those four in particular, Lamb, Altar, Cross, and Light, are the ones that you perceived as these eternal elements of the Mass? Because the Mass is our school for self-sacrifice. It's our school to be like God, to live charity. And in the Mass, when it's a properly ordered sanctuary, all your eyes are drawn First of all, probably to the cross and then the altar beneath the cross and the light, the candles are all symmetrical and parallel with the cross. So they all fit together. 
as a kind of a unity with the tabernacle there. And in the tabernacle is the Lamb of God, or he who more probably comes down on the altar in the sacrifice of the mass. Our attention is drawn to all these elements. And then I suppose I was finding in the scriptures just how early they go. And then listening to the rabbis who talk about the beginning and creation, but they don't understand this in the light of Christ. So they talk about the foundation stone, which is now in Jerusalem under the dome on the rock, which that rock is supposed to be the foundation stone where the rabbis say creation began. We might get into this later with the place, but clearly for us, with the spiritual understanding, the rock is Christ. He is the foundation stone of the new creation. So whereas there might be World War Three or four to fight over this rock in Jerusalem, which is quite imaginable. Think, why is anybody fighting over a piece of stone? It's meant to be teaching us about the, the living stone, Jesus Christ, the foundation of the new creation, where it all begins. And on him, he raises a temple of living stones. And so we're not so bothered as Christians anymore to fight over a piece of real estate. We're supposed to be fighting against sin and the demons to win souls. It's visually, when you go to Mass, those four are there. But then, as you're saying, you also find them in Scripture. And you even talk about the beginning. So if I could, maybe just point you to that. One of the parts of the book that I just found absolutely fascinating. So again, not just visually looking at the Mass, but as well as we read, as we read the sacred Scriptures. And if we just open it, I, of course, read it in English. I can get the Latin a little bit, but I'm not going to get the Greek and the Hebrew. But you pulled out some fascinating things showing how these elements are found in the very first lines, words, letters, or characters of Scripture. If you could please elaborate a little bit on that as well so that people can see just some of the depth and richness that we can find in, in God's revelation. Right, so if we're looking for the Holy Trinity, we know that only came with the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He talked about the Father and he sent the Spirit. And many would say you can't find the Holy Trinity in the Old Testament. But the Trinity is there because it's, it's the pattern of reality. But he's hidden and needs the light of the New Testament to reveal. And so if we think of the first three verses of Genesis, the act of creation, although it's an act of all three divine persons, it's attributed to God the Father. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. We think of the Father. Genesis 2 tells us that the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, literally the, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So we have the Spirit named. And in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this God speaking, it is his word that he speaks, who is the Son of God. So Frank Sheed wrote a beautiful book about the Trinity saying that the best way for human beings to express the generation of the second person of the Trinity is either to think of a son or a word. But it's a full word. The word that God speaks is himself. And that's why the son is like the father. And so in Genesis 1-3, we see God speaks and there is light. And the light is Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. But he existed from eternity with the Father and Spirit. So there's the Trinity in the first three verses, but you can go to the first three words of Genesis, which is Barashit, Baha, Elohim, and break that down. In fact, the first three letters, Barah, spell Son of God. 
Bar being sun, and the A is the letter Aleph, which stands for the spirit. Then Shit is Lamb of the Cross, because the last letter T is the Tav, it's the sign of the cross that the angels sign those with who will not be destroyed on the last day. And Tav means the cross. It's actually the letter developed to be like the cross. And then the next word, Bara, the initials are for the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. But for Ben, or Ba, which is Son, Ra, for Ruach Elohim, which is the Spirit, and A, for Abba, or Ab, Father. So you have the Trinity there in the second word. And then Elohim means God, but it's a plural word. Why is God plural? Because we know he's the Holy Trinity. So in the first three words there, you have the Son of God, the Lamb of the Cross, the Holy Trinity, God. And the first three letters of the Hebrew Bible are the initials of the Holy Trinity, as is the second word. They're the same. All right. So it's just however much detail you want to go back to, we find the Blessed Trinity there. And it's not that you want to do this with all the Bible, going into every letter, because you can easily see things that don't exist. Like you look at the clouds and you see patterns that aren't really there. So Protestants have computers to try and crack the Bible code where they line up all the letters in a grid and they read into it that the Antichrist is Obama, which is stupid. <laughs> He's not. And they sound dumb now saying that 15 years ago or whatever. Um, God, we can't force God's revelation by using a quantum computer which can crack the Bible code. It's like the Hebrew, is a gematria where they assign letters, numbers to letters, and it develops into Kabbalah. St. John shows that you can say the number of the Antichrist is 666, and that has a meaning, which many think is either Nero or it connects with Solomon having 666 talents for, for the temple and becoming corrupted in idolatry. And I think it means it on a level of, it, God's playful with this stuff, but he doesn't want us to try and derive the dogmas of the church from it and derive a secret knowledge of the end times from it. The only way we get that knowledge is by purity and self-sacrifice so that we're open to the the Holy Spirit who guides us. But still, the the scriptures are so layered, we find him at every level in there. That's definitely the fascinating part, Father, that we find him at every level and even in that uh, the sign of the cross being, if you will, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet sort of developed from that and that that's what the angel signs them with. Yeah, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, which stands for this eternal spirit, God. And the last letter is Tav, the cross. And twice in the first line of Genesis, you have this word Et, which doesn't have a meaning in itself, but it signals what the next word is. It's a direct object. So you think, what is this word Et? It's actually the Alpha and the Omega, or the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end. So again, you have Jesus Christ twice in there, and it, it when it says God created heavens and the earth, it ver-et joins the heavens and the earth. So you have heaven and earth joined by the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. And in fact, the whole um, beginning of Genesis paints for us an image of a cross. When it says God created the heavens and the earth, you have a vertical stroke there from the heavens down to the earth. Then it tells us God separated the waters above the firmament from below. So you have a horizontal separation. Which is the, and then it says that God made the dry land to appear from the waters. So you have the cross planted in the earth and the separation of 
land and water is the separation of good and evil, or the saved from the damned, which is the same separation we saw of light from the darkness, of night from day, right at the beginning, or the waters that are above from the waters that are below. This is the separation that's taking place through history. And yet it's all crammed there with the first images we get in Genesis. And then as you said about the tree, Our Lady appearing over a tree at Fatima. Yes, it speaks of the cross as something that's living and bears fruit. The Garden of Eden is full of these trees bearing fruit. We're meant to think of the cross. No, that's fascinating, Father. Well, we'll come back to that when I invite you again, especially just that image that you leave us with of the cross connecting, because we don't just find it, obviously, at the beginning, but we find it throughout. For example, even in Jacob's Ladder and the place that you referenced. So if we can cover that next time, that'll be good. But just to remind everyone, again, we're discussing crucifixion to creation. You can get this book through Amazon, but you can also get it from the St. Vincent Ferrer Foundation. You can go online. That's svfonline.org and get that book there or any of Father's other books there. And Father also has a channel on YouTube called Scripture and Tradition where you can get a lot of the other things that he's teaching us. So thank you, Father, for joining us. God bless you, dear viewer. And make sure you join us for the next episode with Father Maudsley. Thank you, David. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website. Fatima.org or call us at 1-800-263-8160 All need to hear the message Our Lady brought the world at Fatima and we must all faithfully observe it. So for the glory of God, the honor of Our Lady and salvation of many souls please share the Fatima message with everyone you know and may Our Lady reward you. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us.